Well, welcome to another day as we go through the Word of God, and I'm so excited that you are with me, and I hope you've got your Bibles ready for us to continue our journey through the book of 2 Thessalonians. And uh, before I get into that, just a reminder, if you haven't had a chance to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, like my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, Instagram, AP Richards, please go ahead and do that, like, comment, subscribe, and share to as many of these videos as you possibly can so we can get the word of God out for as many people to understand it as possible. So glad that you are with me. And uh, today we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm just going to go through this and I'm, I'm going to stop uh, at, at around a certain time marker and rather than, because I don't know how long this is going to take me. There is so much in this chapter that I may need to do you know, three, three sessions on this. Uh, but I'm going to just go through it because it's something that we cannot afford to be ignorant of and it's something that we can't afford to rush through and not understand. Uh, it's very important because it's all about the coming of Jesus. When's Jesus coming back for his church? What's it going to look like? Uh, the, the rapture, the tribulation, uh, all those kind of things. We're going to cover that uh, in chapter two. What, what's the work of the, the Antichrist? What's he going to look like? How will we know it's him? All those things are all in just in this one, uh, this one chapter here. Uh, it, it's absolutely amazing. But anyway, so here's what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 1 and we're just going to see how far we can get through it today and then we'll get to the next part the day after that and then we'll go from there. So, verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together in Him, we ask you... <laughs> uh, you know, I, I have to stop there because... There is so much just in that first verse. You could read that first verse and not, not see what Paul is actually writing here because Paul is addressing questions that were raised in his first letter where in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he instructed them about the catching away of the church in uh, verses 16 to 18. And, and the challenge in understanding this particular chapter that we're reading uh, comes from the fact that, that it's a supplement to what Paul had already said to them in words. And, and we don't know what words he said. We know the letter, but we don't know what he said to them when he was with them for those few weeks when the church was established. But the ideas here are clear enough if you piece them all together. Now, he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. Paul clearly wrote of the return of Jesus, but the wording here implies a difference between the coming and our gathering. And it strongly suggests that there's, there's essentially two elements to the coming of Jesus. One coming for his church, which is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and then the other to judge a rebellious world, described in Matthew 24. And so, uh, which is at the end of the Great Tribulation. Leon Morris said they are two parts of one great event. Uh, D. Hybert shows how the grammar of the ancient Greek in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, shows this. He says, The government of the two nouns under one article makes it clear that one event viewed under two complementary aspects is thought of. Now, I wouldn't normally go this deep into it, but I, I know that this is a contentious subject, and I also know that it's something that I want to teach you in a rightly dividing the word of truth way. Uh, and this is, this is what I'm, I'm trying to teach you in this. 
Uh, this is completely consistent with other passages of Scripture that indicate that there has to be two aspects of Jesus' second coming. And those aspects must be separated by some period of time. Uh, there are different world conditions described when Jesus comes back for the rapture and then when he comes back at the end of the tribulation. There's, there's different manner of his return. What's it going to look like? Uh, there's different scenarios about the predictability of the time. We have more in the Bible. Daniel 12, uh, in fact, many verses in, in Daniel and Matthew 24 tell us about the time frame between when that, that first part of Jesus coming back and the second part. So there's so much just in that first verse. Verse 2. Not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble about this, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. People were counterfeiting what Paul was saying. And they're saying, oh, no, he said this. No, he didn't really say that. Or, oh, yeah, no, Paul told me this. Uh, and then they were making up things. Uh, Paul had to be very clear because there was not only a misunderstanding of his teaching uh, to, that caused them to be shaken and troubled, they're, they're, you know, and he says here, he uses a strong wording, he says, a sudden jolt, okay? Um, not to be soon shaken in mind. Um, he also says that they're troubled, they're in, they're in a constant state of being upset. Why? Why were they like this? because they thought that the day of the Lord had already come. Now, uh, I want to talk to you about this, uh, about the day of Christ. If, if you see in your Bibles, the word Christ has an asterisk next to it. And that's because uh, in the Textus Receptus that was used uh, when, when, when earlier versions of the Bible were written, it, it, it was translated into the word Christ. But now we have access to uh, uh, different texts, uh, not notably the Codex Sinaiticus, uh, or Sin Sinaiticus, uh, there's different ways to say it, which actually was written in 300 AD, that's the copy that we have, and uh, that, that manuscript reads that word as Lord, Day of the Lord, as opposed to Day of Christ. Now, the Day of the Lord is, is, has a, a very rich Old Testament background, and it was mentioned in Paul's previous letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, meaning not a single day, 24-hour period, but a period associated with God's outpouring of judgment and the deliverance of God's people. And a significant aspect of the day of the Lord is the great tribulation talked about in Matthew 24, verses 1 to 31. And he said, as though the day of the Lord had come. And the Thessalonians were not afraid that the day of Christ was coming. They were afraid that they were in it already. But the, you know, Leon Morris says, the verb does not really mean to be at hand, but rather to be present. Uh, the noted uh, Greek commentator, Dean Alford, translates this passage. To the effect that the day of the Lord is present, not is at hand, the verb used here occurs six times in the New Testament and always in the sense of being present. In those two of those places, Romans 8, 38, 1 Corinthians 3, 22, the things present are distinguished expressly from the things to come. So from this, uh, it's clear that the day of Christ 
had not yet been completed. And Paul's going to go on and demonstrate that it had also not yet dawned because the Thessalonians were afraid that they were already in the great tribulation um, and they feared that they'd missed the rapture. But Paul's going to demonstrate they're not in the day of Christ because if they were, then certain signs would be present. Now, it's very important to notice that the Thessalonians would be shaken or troubled by the thought of being in the great tribulation. Why? They would only be troubled if they had been taught by Paul that they would escape through the rapture. Otherwise, they'd be, in a sense, welcoming the great tribulation uh, as a prelude, a necessary prelude to the second coming of Jesus. But Paul had very clearly taught them that they would escape God's judgment on the earth during the period known as the day of the Lord. In other words, you're not going to be here for what I, what's going to happen. I'm going to take you away, says God to my church, those who accepted the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. So then he, let me talk about what he says, either by spirit or by word or letter. We don't know whether there was misguided prophecy. We don't know whether there were counterfeit letters uh, or that there was some leader like, you know, teaching different things. Uh, but they were upset at the idea somehow that they had missed this, this event that Paul was talking about. Verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, massive amounts in this. That day will not come. Paul is not going to describe events which must precede the rapture, but events that are concrete evidence of the great tribulation, the day of Christ. And in, in this sense, uh, we, one cannot be certain that the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation has come unless these signs are present. And he says, what are those signs? Unless the falling away comes first. Now, the ancient Greek word for falling away actually indicates a rebellion or a departure. They're the two meanings. And, and Paul's point is clear. You are worried that we are in the great tribulation and that you missed the rapture. But you can know that we're not in the great tribulation because we have not yet seen the falling away that comes first. Now, what is the falling away? The article the, the falling away, is very significant because it's not a falling away, it's the falling away, the great and final rebellion. David Guzik, some have suggested that the idea behind falling away is really a departure in the sense of the rapture of the church. But a departure implies that the one leaving does so of his own accord and initiative. And this is not the case with the catching away of the church. In addition, the ancient Greek word in the New Testament, Acts 21.21, forsake, or in the Septuagint, also implies something sinful and negative. So we have to understand that the idea of a great end times apostasy, what does that mean? That means an end times abandonment of religious beliefs does not contradict the idea of a great end times revival. 
Some Christians doubt the idea of a great revival in the last days. Um, and they even welcome the apostasy and the, the abandonment of religious beliefs, believing that that will signal the end times. But just as the book of Revelation describes great rejection of Jesus during the Great Tribulation, Revelation 9 uh, and 17, it also talks about a great acceptance of Jesus, Revelation 7. So the two can stand side by side. Okay, let's talk about the man of sin. The man of sin is revealed. Before the great tribulation can be identified with certainty, a particular person known as the man of sin must be revealed. And Paul's point is clear to the Thessalonians. You're worried that we're in the great tribulation and that you missed the rapture. But you can know that we're not in the great tribulation because we haven't yet seen the man of sin revealed. Now, there's, there's no good reason, none, to see this man of sin to be anything other than what the plainest meaning is here. An individual who will come to great prominence in the very last days. The, uh, Adam Clark, the fathers understood the Antichrist to be intended, but of this person, they seem to have formed no specific idea. Now, Daniel described an individual person. He said in Daniel 9.26, the prince who is to come. He said in Daniel 8.23, the king of fierce countenance. He said in Daniel 11, the willful king. Jesus described the Antichrist as an individual person. John 5.43, the one who comes in his own name. Uh, so we're not surprised that Paul describes this man of sin as an individual person. It's not a system. It's not an office occupied by somebody. It's an abs absolute individual. And this man of sin is actually a very prominent figure in the Bible. Uh, and it's the ultimate personification of the spirit of the Antichrist that's spoken of in 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. He, he, he's going to, he, he, will, he has to live for years before the rapture. Uh, but he's only going to be revealed as the man of sin during the period of the Great Tribulation. And, and the idea behind the title, the man of sin, is that, uh, D. Uh, D. Eben Hybert, sin has such absolute domination over him that he seems to be the very embodiment of it. He's also called the son of perdition. Now, perdition means destruction. Uh, the complete loss of well-being. And it's really the opposite to salvation, if you like, uh, salvation and perdition. And to call him the son of perdition means his character is marked by this destruction. Uh, James Moffat says the phrase son of perdition essentially means the doomed one. Okay, let's move on to verse four. Who opposes, so this is the son of, the, the, the man of sin who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple. This is, this is really, really interesting. Sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The man of sin is going to demand worship for himself that belongs only to God. Luke chapter 4 verse 8. This demand for worship is also described in Revelation chapter 13 verses 1 to 6. Adam Clark, he stands against 
and exalts himself above all divine authority and above every object of adoration and every institution relative to divine worship. He's going to sponsor this man of sin, a religion that doesn't tolerate worship of anyone or anything except himself. And he's going to demand worship in such a way that is so extreme that he's going to set himself up as God in the temple of Jerusalem, demanding blasphemous worship from everybody. Revelation 13, Matthew 24. And, and he's going to sit in the literal temple of God in Jerusalem. Um, now, the literal understanding of, of Paul's words is supported by the fact, a very interesting fact, by the way, that when Paul wrote this letter, something similar to this uh, almost had happened in the recent past. Okay, let me read to you a quote from James Moffat uh, about what was happening at the time of Paul writing this letter. The recent attempt of Caligula to erect a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem may have furnished a trait for Paul's delineation of the future deceiver. The fearful impiety of this outburst had sent a profound shock through Judaism, which would be felt by Jewish Christians as well. So this, this, is, this, this is the man of sin, sitting in the temple of God, declaring himself God. Uh, the ancient Greek word for temple that's used here indicates not just the temple, but the actual holy of holies, the most holy place within the temple, and not just the temple as a whole, uh, Leon Morris. It is not that he enters the temple precincts. He invades the most sacred place and there takes his seat. His action is itself a claim to deity. That's Leon Morris. And, and it's, it's really the ultimate blasphemy that results in certain judgment for him because the abomination of desolation spoken of both by Daniel and Jesus is what's going to take place. Now, the prophet Daniel told us that the Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jews. It's one of the ways we'll know him. And bring sacrifice and offerings to an end in the temple. And that the Antichrist is going to defile the temple by setting up something abominable there. You can read about that in Daniel 9, Daniel 11, and Daniel 12. And Jesus said, to look for an abomination standing in the holy place, which would be the pivotal sign that the season of God's wrath was upon the earth. Matthew 24, 15 to 16 and Matthew 24, 21. Now, what was he going to do? He was going to show himself that he is God. The, 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 you have to understand the man of sin truly is an anti-Christ. Satan has planned the career of the man of sin to mirror and counterfeit the ministry of Jesus. Okay, this is very, very important. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 9. Both Jesus and the man of sin are revealed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 3. Both Jesus and the man of sin have a gospel, a good news. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Both Jesus and the man of sin say that they alone should be worshipped. Thessalonians 2.4 Both Jesus and the man of sin have support for their claims 
by miraculous works. Yes, the man of sin is going to appear to do miracles. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. But clearly the man of sin is a counterfeit. He is Satan's counterfeit of the true Messiah. And in the end, the man of sin, the only person that he'll be able to prove to him uh, or prove that he is God is he'll prove it to himself. He's the only one that's going to believe it. And the coming of Jesus and the judgment of God is going to make it clear that the man of sin is not God at all. Now, I want you to understand that there is a counterfeit trinity that is set up by Satan. So we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The counterfeit trinity can't come up with by the devil is Satan in the position of the Father, the Antichrist in the position of Christ, and the false prophet in the position of the Holy Spirit. See, you have to remember that the Holy, that the, uh, the sorry, uh, the man of sin is a product of Satan. And Satan cannot create anything. He himself was created as an angel by God. Free will chose to reject him. Satan cannot create. All he can do is counterfeit. That's all he can actually do. You know what? I'm, I'm going to leave it there for today. And, uh, and I'm going to start verse uh, 5. Uh, in, in our next talk because I just I know there's so much that I have covered today and I think I need to give you time to digest it rather than continuing on because there is so much of this and it's very important. Maybe you need to listen back to it again and, and write some notes. Uh, but my observation is this uh, from this just these few verses that we've looked at one to four here. Uh, and that is, it will be very clear. We will know uh, if we're here. Now, <laughs> I believe that if the man of sin is revealed to you, then you will have missed the rapture because I believe that Jesus is coming for his church and that we're not going to be here when the Antichrist is revealed. I think we, we might speculate on who he is during our lifetime, but then the church is going to be called away, raptured, and then during that time of tribulation after that, there, that's when the Antichrist will be revealed for who he really is. So I kind of pray that I hope that none of you are around, or I'm not around, to watch who it is. Uh, because that means that we're going to be in a different situation than what we were hoping to be in. Always remember that the, the best way to secure your eternity is to accept Jesus' free gift of salvation. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be eternally saved. So that's what I encourage you to do if you've never done that before. Just do it right now. Don't do it out of fear. Do it out of thankfulness and say, God, I'm not doing this because I'm scared. I'm doing this because I'm thankful. And everything that we do with God should be because we're thankful, not because we're scared. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. That's what we have. That's what Timothy wrote. And so I want to encourage you today, understand that God loves you and me and wants us to not be ignorant of these things. Heavenly Father, help us to, uh, to allow these things to, to, to settle into our spirits today for us to be understanding uh, of what it means, Lord, for us to accept your simple free gift. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.